This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On November 5th, 1975, a group of forestry workers were in the woods near Apache Sitgreaves National Forest, close to Snowflake, Arizona. They were clearing a section of trees which they had been hired to cut down. It was hard, dangerous work, but the men were experienced lumberjacks and had been doing it for years. After a long day's work, it was getting dark, and they were heading home for the day in a work truck, when one of the men noticed a light glowing in the sky off to his right. At first he didn't make much of it, but then the other men started noticing it too, and commenting on it. Is it the moon? One asked. No, I can see the moon over here, on this side of the truck, said another man sitting behind the driver. Maybe a forest fire? Another suggested nervously. Someone murmured that they hoped that wasn't the case, and it didn't look quite right for that either. It was deer hunting season. Travis Walton says of that day, looking back, I thought it was a group of hunters camped out on the hill up there. The strange golden glow was getting closer, and they realized they were inadvertently driving toward it. As the truck emerged from the trees and into a clearing, it became very obvious that the source of the light in the sky was not a normal one. It wasn't hunters camped out on the hill, and it wasn't a forest fire. Instead, the group of men were shocked by the sight of a glowing disc-shaped aircraft hovering above the ground about a hundred feet away. When we burst into the clearing, where we could see the source of this object, it was just like, whoa, it was just mind-blowing instantly, Walton says, still shocked by the event nearly 50 years later. It's a flying saucer, one of the men yelled, while the others in his party stayed in the truck, staring up at the object. Travis Walton took off, running toward the glowing disc, wanting to inspect it more closely. He says he just expected it to take off and disappear in an instant, but it didn't. Instead, it stayed where it was. The entire clearing was lit up with an eerie golden glow as he ran full tilt toward the aircraft, risking his life to get a better look. What sort of a man would do something like that, you might wonder? Why would you risk your life just to take a better look at something when you don't even know what it is or how dangerous it could be? Well, if you're asking that question, you probably don't know Travis Walton, but maybe you should. Part one, the encounter. Walton described the flying saucer as looking like two oversized pie pans placed lip to lip with a large bowl over the top in the center. The disc-shaped craft was metallic, glowing, and emitting a light which filled the air with a yellow haze. On the bottom side of it were large rectangular panels, lit up and glowing with energy. As Walton got closer, the UFO began to move, and he says it started to emit a sound which grew louder and louder. The sound, which was almost inaudible at first, filled the air. 
the men in the truck reported hearing it as well. It was a low, thunderous rumble that was felt more than heard, accompanied by high-pitched frequencies as well. The men in the truck were screaming at Walton, telling him to get away from the strange airborne vehicle. He said later, describing the event in his book, that he paused and had a sober moment of realization. He wondered if he was being foolhardy, but his curiosity got the better of him. As his supervisor and co-worker screamed for him to get away from the strange airship, Walton decided to move in closer instead, telling himself he could always run if he had to. Getting away would have been the smart thing to do, Walton says, thinking back on that day with a blank stare that never seems to leave his face. But when it moved, it startled me. I just ducked for cover, down behind this log. He says that when he dove behind the log, it brought him closer to the aircraft. And when he stood up, it was the closest he'd been to it. It was now only eight or 10 feet away, and it was moving erratically wobbling like an unstable top about to tip over. That's when the energy discharge happened, Walton says. Immediately, Steve said, it got him, like if you shot a deer. He remembers nothing from that moment onward, for a little while at least. But his co-workers and supervisor described the event to media and to police officials afterward, saying Travis's spine arched backwards and his arms and legs shot back as he was lifted into the air from the force of the blow. He flew 20 feet backwards, cast violently through the air. His shoulder hit a rocky outcrop and he landed limp and motionless on the ground. Terrified that the UFO would go after them next, the driver of the truck gunned the engine as Travis's coworkers screamed at him to get away from the place. They drove away at full speed, taking nervous glances back and hoping they weren't being pursued. Initially, Walton's theory was that this beam of light was a stun gun of some kind knocking him unconscious so that he could be abducted. But nowadays, he has a more altruistic view of his captors. He compares the beam which struck him to a static discharge, similar to a lightning bolt, seeking out the highest point to reach the ground. Coincidentally, he says, this particular location has the highest level of lightning strikes in the USA, aside from the Everglades. Could this have been the reason for the visitor's appearance? Is there some sort of connection? Did the UFO need to recharge its battery for a return flight home, like Doc's DeLorean and Back to the Future? When Travis regained consciousness, he says it didn't happen all at once. Instead, it came back very slowly. Seeing that he was in a dim space, he first thought he was in a hospital. There was a feeling of pain, as if he had been mortally wounded and he believed he was dying. Once he was fully awake, it didn't take long for him to realize he was not in a hospital, at least not an ordinary one. As he writhed in agony and looked at his surroundings, he saw there were beings all around him with large heads and oversized almond-shaped eyes. They watched him impassively and had no reaction to his suffering. Walton says he associated the pain he was experiencing with the creatures that surrounded him and he became combative and angry. Three of the beings were standing around him and he began to get up to try and fight them. He described them as short with large eyes. They were like small children with little musculature. There was a light fixture overhead emitting a soft glow. 
Walton says he lashed out at one of the creatures near him, and it fell away from him. He rolled off the table he was lying on, trying to get away. Then he grabbed something from the shelf behind him, terrified. A large cylinder of glass, or some clear material, he says of the object. I wasn't studying it. I was looking at them. The only way out was a doorway on the other side of them. He describes the beings as having abnormally large, watchful eyes. They were hairless and silent. They had no expressions on their faces, and they did not react to his attacks with anger or alarm. It was as if these creatures had evolved beyond the need for verbal conversation and communicated with their minds. They were smooth, very light. When I pushed one, it fell back away very easily into the other one. Walton says it was the most utterly terrifying event of his life. He was catatonic for weeks afterwards. One can only imagine being in a similar situation and not knowing what these things were or what they wanted. It would have been horrifying. He says that since he was returned home, despite his angry attacks on the creatures trying to help him, shows that they are benevolent and kind and not trying to hurt people. He believes they could read his mind and knew he was scared, but a good person at heart. He believes they were trying to save him from life-threatening injuries he sustained when the bolt of energy inadvertently traveled through him. After his abduction and subsequent recovery aboard the UFO, Walton says he was brought back to Earth by the beings and all he remembers is seeing the disc-shaped saucer flying away through the sky as he regained consciousness beside a gravel road in Heber, Arizona. He had been missing for five days and six hours at that point. Police had searched using trained dogs and helicopters, but found no sign of him anywhere. Travis Walton returned home and discovered he had a decision to make. He could tell the truth about what had happened, or he could lie to save his reputation. People who claim to have been abducted by UFOs don't generally have the most sterling reputations after all. Many are publicly ridiculed for their beliefs, and some even lose their jobs, families, and livelihood for telling their stories. Walton went public with his version of events, despite the risks, telling the police and the media what had happened to him. He told everyone the reason they couldn't find him was simple. He'd been abducted by aliens and his co-workers corroborated that his story was true. Today, the Travis Walton story is widely considered to be the most famous and convincing alien abduction story in history. Books have been written about the event, a Hollywood movie was produced, documentary films and television shows, and countless articles and interviews have been done documenting the story. The six men with Travis that day corroborated Walton's tale and each passed lie detector tests. A total of 16 polygraph tests were administered altogether, showing the men believed their own story. To this day, nearly 50 years later, none of the men have gone back on their version of events, despite sometimes being ridiculed for their tale. Skeptics quickly labeled the event a hoax. They believed Walton was using the story for financial gain, hoping to write a book or have a movie made about the event he claimed had happened. And sure enough, he did both, and has made significant money from the story over the years. So, is Travis Walton really a con man? Is he truly just a liar who made up an incredible story, 
and convinced some friends to lie along with him. One thing we know is that seven people firmly state this event is true and that they witnessed it with their own eyes. We know that Travis Walton really did go missing for nearly a week and helicopters and trained rescue dogs failed to find him. Is it possible to find out for sure whether Travis Walton and the men with him that day were telling the truth? Is Walton himself really credible? Or is he just another man looking for 15 minutes of fame and a way to get rich? Today on They're Out There, we'll be looking at the fine details of this abduction story as we try to determine for ourselves what really happened to Travis Walton. Part two, something to prove. In 1975, Travis Walton was 22 years old. He had developed a reputation for himself around his hometown of Snowflake, Arizona. People thought of him as a bad boy. He drove a loud Harley Davidson motorcycle. He was a bull rider, a boxer, and a woodsman. Once he'd been with a group of friends driving down the road and a large bear was seen outside the vehicle. Instead of staying in the car, Walton reportedly got out and chased the bear back into the trees, scaring it off. He worked with a crew of men who used chainsaws and axes to clear large sections of forest, a physically demanding job which was dangerous and difficult. The crew boss, Mike Rogers, said it was not a job for everyone. He often had trouble finding men willing to do the work. That day in November, 1975, had been a long one and the contract was demanding. They'd taken only a few short breaks and were exhausted by the evening when the event occurred. After seeing the flying saucer, Travis had surprised his coworkers by exiting the vehicle and had perplexed them even further by running toward the bizarre UFO they had stumbled across. They all wanted to get away from it, but he wanted to examine it more closely. The discharge of energy which sent Travis flying into the air, causing him to nearly die by the looks of it, sent the other men into a panic. They fled from the scene, racing out of the forest and away from the job site. It was a terrifying experience, says John Goulet, a crew member who was there that day. I imagine the one who was the most shook up was probably Steve. He was 17 years old. He lied about his age to get the job. Yeah, I was 17. Steve Pierce, the other crew member, confirms, talking about that day on a documentary called Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. I was a kid. I thought we were gonna go to jail for murder. There was times I was saying, we need to go back, John Goulet says. Then we'd say, no, we need to get help. Everybody was going back and forth. But when we got back there and we looked around and we couldn't find Travis, that's when it hit Mike. He and Travis were best buddies, and he felt really bad about leaving him out there like that. After leaving the forest again, Goulet says they called the sheriff. I think Kenny just told him it was a missing person. He didn't tell him what was up. Ken Peterson, another crew member, says the sheriff pulled up a little while after that, meeting the men at a gas station. Three of them got into the police car and told him their story. Looking back on the day, Marlon F. Gillespie says he remembers thinking that the men did not appear to be intoxicated. There was no indication they had been drinking or doing drugs. He did not debate their version of events, and he did not say at first what he thought of their story. What he really thought was, these boys committed some sort of crime 
and made up this story to cover their tracks. But they should have chosen a better story. He says the boys looked upset or scared. They also appeared concerned about their lost friend. It is important to note these were young men just a few years removed from high school, with one still in his teens. And they were genuinely concerned that their story would be met with skepticism. Worse yet, they were worried that they would be blamed for Travis's disappearance or charged with his murder. Upon hearing the news, Walton's brother firmly believed foul play to be the case and went out searching through the piles of felled timber, searching for his brother's corpse. A search party went out the next day. All the crew members were asked by police, what did you do with Travis? Where's the body? As helicopters were dispatched and search dogs were sent out. Steve, the 17-year-old crew member, was taken for a polygraph test first. He says he was terrified they would set it up to make him look guilty and that he would never get out of the jailhouse. For those who don't know, a polygraph test is not admissible evidence in court. And the veracity of these pseudoscientific instruments has been debunked over time. Nowadays, we know that there are several ways to fool these devices. And people who have later been proven guilty have passed these tests time and time again, successfully lying about their own crimes. Essentially, one could argue, their results are meaningless. They are just a way of scaring someone into telling the truth. Despite these shortcomings, police often saw people change their story as a result of these tests. Stephen, the 17-year-old, and all of Travis's co-workers continue telling the same story, despite the pressure being put on them. There were a few minor inconsistencies, but nothing to indicate they were lying. Six days went by, and the men were interrogated again and again. They never changed their story. After all the questioning and concerns that Travis might be dead, the missing 22-year-old suddenly resurfaced. He called for assistance from a phone booth, saying he needed help badly. He was outside of Heber Overgaard, a nearby township. Authorities found him looking like he'd been through hell. He had five days worth of beard growth, according to reports, and he had quite a story to tell. Part three, what Travis said. Walton's return home was unexpected by police and even his own brother, who believed he was dead but the man told everyone what had really happened during the six days he was missing, and few would believe it. He said after being knocked unconscious by the bolt of energy, he was out for a long time. When he woke up, he felt as if he was in a hospital. He was on a steel table, like an operating table, and was surrounded by figures. He thought to himself at first that whatever happened must have really injured him, and he needed medical assistance but his consciousness was fading in and out, and he was having trouble focusing. He looked down and saw a strange box on his chest, then looked up to see someone was working on the box. He looked up at the face of what he thought was a nurse and was stunned and horrified to see it was a creature with huge eyes and a very large head. Immediately, he began to rip the wires and life support systems off of himself that they had attached and stood up from the table grabbing the nearest item he could find to fend them off. The creatures came even closer to look at him, their faces showing no fear or emotion. And just as he was about to take a swing at one of them, 
They turned around and walked away, disappearing down a hallway. He was terrified, but decided he needed to find a way out, so left the room and went the opposite direction. Entering a door at the end of the hallway, he found a large room with only a chair in it. The walls of the room were flat, white, and glossy all around, and there was no other purpose to it but to sit down in the chair or leave the room. Just then, a person wearing what Walton described as a clear space helmet entered the room. He was wearing a blue uniform which reminded Walton of a general from the military, but he had long hair, uncharacteristic of a military man. The odd thing was, when he looked at the man's eyes, they were far off and distant, as if he were in a trance. He asked the man where they were, pleading with him to help him, begging him for assistance. The strange man grabbed his arm and led him out of the room. Walton went with him willingly, believing he was trying to help him. He was led out of the building they were in, out to a large hangar. UFOs were everywhere as the man led Travis toward another building and brought him inside. In the building were three more people. They forced him onto a table and put a gas mask on his face. And shortly after that, he blacked out again. Walton told his friends this story at the crew boss, Mike Rogers' house, following his return. They all believed him after seeing the UFO for themselves. But none of them kept in touch after that. They all went their separate ways, following this horribly tragic event that changed all of their lives forever. The question for skeptics is what really happened that day? Was a UFO the cause of Walton's disappearance? Or did something else occur that those involved wanted to cover up? Part four, an expert opinion. As the years have gone by, Travis Walton's story has changed. He was recently on a two-hour podcast called The Joe Rogan Experience, where he discussed his abduction in great length. Two hours seems like a long time to tell a tale, even one as bizarre as this one. But despite the extended time frame, he left a lot out of his story. Walton is evasive at times during the interview. His face is flat and expressionless, and he does not make eye contact for the majority of the time, a potential sign of deception. Or it may have just indicated his unease in such a high-pressure situation, with millions watching and listening. When asked to describe that day, he does so with clarity for brief moments, then begins jumping around to other things, and omitting certain parts of his abduction, which he had previously talked about. For instance, neglecting to mention the long-haired general with the clear space helmet, or the other humans he encountered among the aliens. Skeptic and psychiatrist, Dr. Todd Grande, a YouTuber whose videos discuss UFO frauds among other topics, spoke about Walton's interview with Rogan. He mentions the long list of details he left out, like the entire second half of his time spent with the aliens. Dr. Grande goes on to give reasons why he believes the witnesses from that day are not credible. First of all, he says they were all young at the time, in their teens and early 20s, and had little to lose. Second, they waited two hours to call the police. This seems a bit unusual, he says. Your friend gets zapped by an alien spaceship, and you sit around waiting for two hours to call the authorities? He goes on to talk about polygraph tests and how five of the six co-workers passed the polygraph tests they were given, as well as Walton himself. 
but that is not conclusive evidence of anything. Polygraph tests are pseudoscientific nonsense, he says. The results don't matter. What does matter is that Walton failed one polygraph test 10 days after the event, he says. Apparently, Walton's breathing pattern was suspect and indicated he could have been attempting to deceive the polygraph test. But why bother to deceive the test if you're telling the truth? Dr. Grande repeatedly calls into question Walton's credibility, as well as the credibility of his co-workers, as Walton and one of the other men in the work crew pled guilty to first-degree burglary and forgery charges in 1971. So two of these men already had a history of criminal deception and fraud before that day. Walton also had a previous interest in UFOs before the event. His friends called him a UFO freak, which Grande says is convenient for someone who later claimed to see one of these ships and be abducted by it. There was also the financial interest involved in this endeavor, according to the skeptic psychiatrist. The logging job the men were working on was behind schedule, and one extension had already been given. The crew leader, Mike Rogers, was being penalized at a rate of $1 per acre. They were nowhere near being finished, and his completion deadline was coming up soon, just five days following the abduction. The job was bigger than he initially estimated when he underbid all of the competitors. It would need to be completed in the spring, which meant Mike Rogers, the crew leader, wouldn't be able to collect on his payment until then. But the abduction changed all of that. The men suddenly had a reason to refuse completing the job, citing the dangerous beam of light of unknown origins which had injured their coworker. Was it lightning or a UFO or some other unknown phenomenon? Who could say? The only thing they knew was that it had almost killed one of their friends. And sure enough, 13 days later, the forestry service terminated the contract. Mike Rogers wouldn't have to wait until spring to collect his money after all. Once another company took on the job, he was paid what he was due. Another matter which Dr. Grande brings up again and again is Walton's fascination with UFOs. On October 20th, 1975. About two weeks before the incident, a made-for-TV movie was televised on NBC. It was a two-hour special titled The UFO Incident. It was the story of the 1961 alien abduction of Barney and Betty Hill. Walton admits he saw the special, and the similarities between the two tales are very apparent. I believe Walton and his co-workers were lying, Dr. Todd Grande sums up in his assessment of the Travis Walton story. This was a hoax. There was no incentive for any of them to come forward to say this was a lie. So they keep maintaining. Others have a more favorable view of Travis Walton and his associates, saying they are telling the truth about that day. In fact, many people have looked to work with the man who claims he was once abducted by aliens. They've made documentary films, television shows, Hollywood movies, and more printed pages than you could read in one lifetime, documenting the event. Still, if Travis Walton was made rich from all this, it doesn't show. He still drives around a rusted pickup truck that takes 10 attempts to get started. He doesn't look too worried during interviews, as he's now told his story 10,000 times, and he'll likely tell it 10,000 more. The question is, whether that story is real. Part five, fact or fiction? Whether you believe in them or not, 
one thing is for certain. The world of UFO hunting is fraught with frauds and storytellers, con artists and conspiracy theorists, and profiteers trying to make a buck off of people who believe in the legitimate prospect of UFOs. For every real story, there are 10 fakes, if not more. In addition, there are many different viewpoints for any given UFO event. Roswell was a glorified weather balloon sighting, according to some. The famous Lubbock lights were nothing more than a bird migration, seen differently because of the city's recent installation of vapor street lamps, at least according to skeptics. Or take the 1976 Tehran UFO incident. A fighter pilot flying an F-4 was called to investigate a multicolored glowing object hovering in the sky over the capital. When he got closer, he said his electrical systems and targeting systems failed, and he saw something flying towards him from the UFO. Skeptics and analysts of the event would say that the pilots were jumpy from recent action and that the planes they were flying routinely malfunctioned, so it was no surprise his electrical and targeting systems failed. Lights in the sky were as far as the actual reports would go in describing the object in question. And that could have just as easily been a celestial body. A sure UFO sighting for some people is a whole lot of nothing to others. In 1986, there was the Japan Airlines Flight 1628 incident. A Japanese Boeing 747 was flying from Paris to Tokyo. During the flight, two members of the crew noticed unidentified objects out the left side of the airplane. They rose up from below and quickly matched altitude with the jet, acting like escorts. They had rectangular bodies and another, larger, disc-shaped craft came into view as well. The sighting lasted for approximately 50 minutes until the aircraft came within range of Denali. Skeptics of this event say that the pilot, Mr. Terauchi, was a UFO repeater who had two other sightings under his belt, as well as two more following the Japan flight 1628 event. In other words, he was a UFO freak, just like Travis Walton. The famous Pentagon videos can be chalked up to infrared flares, stray birthday party balloons, and distant 747s with their features obscured. If you ask skeptics like Mike West, or Dr. Todd Grande, they will tell you that every one of these events is explainable. Who is to say whether Travis Walton is telling the truth or not? Isn't it possible that something more intelligent than us really exists out there, and that it might take an interest in one of us and want to help? Maybe those who don't believe in these types of things would change their mind if they saw something for themselves that they couldn't understand because for those of us who have actually seen these unexplainable lights in the sky, we continue to go to bed at night wondering, what's really out there? <laughs>